This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Behind the Markets on Business Radio. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the office of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. We've got a very special one-hour interview for you today. Our guest is going to be Mohammed El Arian, the chief economic advisor at Allianz, who was recently named a senior global fellow at the Joseph H. Lauder Institute of Management and International Studies and part-time professor of practice here at Wharton. Uh, so we're excited to have uh, Mohammed on for the hour with Professor Siegel talking about the markets, the economy, a lot of Mohammed's recent thoughts that he's been publishing on and, and talking about on on on, uh, on the media here. Uh, Mohammed, thank you so much for joining the program. Tell us a little bit about how you're getting involved here at the Wharton School. We're glad to have you as part of the, the Wharton community. Well, I'm delighted. It's been so much fun. and I've learned a lot. I've had the honor and the pleasure of teaching 70 first-year MBAs at the Lauder Institute, and it's been incredible. They are smart, they're interactive, they're confident, and I'm learning a ton. Very good. And, and do you think uh, stay, stay, staying here for next year, do we have you back? Yeah, I'm going to have to combine this with something I'm doing over at Cambridge University, but I can tell you so far it's been even better than I expected, and my expectations were sky high, giving the reputation of Wharton. <laughs> well, that, that's great to beat expectation. Mohammed. I think you are the only one that I remember uh, speaking with that has been on CNBC more than I have. <laughs> you, are, you are a very uh, reliant and, uh, and confident spokesman uh, there. I always enjoy uh, watching you. And again, I, I, I do, I'm really pleased you join our, our Wharton no, thank community. You um, so, uh, what do you make? Now, you know, you have been on the cautious side recently, if, I, if I'm interpreting your writings. Um, were you as uh, impressed, maybe even shocked by the strength of this report? So, I've been more on the divergence theme. And I've been arguing the U.S. economy is fine. The U.S. market on a standalone basis is in a good place. Um, the problem is the rest of the world. And I have argued very strongly against those who have been projecting a recession for next year. I've been saying you cannot get a recession with the household sector so strong. And today's numbers that you cited on the employment side, on the confidence side, just reinforce the notion that the household sector is going to underpin the U.S. economy. My problem, Jeremy, is the rest of the world. Um, today, again, we got a very poor number out of Germany. And the question I keep on struggling with is how long can the U.S. diverge from the rest of the world? I've been saying it can continue to do so. So I have been against the view that investors should fade the U.S. markets in favor of the rest of the world, even though the valuation divergence is, is very significant, um, especially with regards to emerging markets. So I've been saying stick with the U.S., stick with the U.S., but at some point over the medium term, 
the uncertainties from the rest of the world, I fear, are going to have an impact for the market, less for the economy and more for the market. Mm. Now, uh, this is really quite interesting because some detected a turnaround um, in the rest of the world. European stocks have done well recently. Of course, they don't have the record of U.S. stocks. Um, There was – I didn't – check on this this German development that you just mentioned, but there were some tentative signs that maybe Germany had bottomed. Um, of course, we also have Brexit looming, and I, I we certainly want your views on that. But did, 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 do you think that that was a little for, false turnaround and that um, a deepening slump in, in uh, Europe uh, will continue? So some have pointed rightly to data showing that the slowdown is bottoming out in Europe. Mm -hmm. And they have said that that is the beginning of a V-shaped recovery. I think what you're going to get is more like an L-shaped recovery, that we we do bottom up at about around 1% growth in Europe, a little bit below. Um, The problem, Jeremy, and you know this really well, is that for the Eurozone, 1% or below risk being stall speed. Mm-hmm. You're not going fast enough to overcome a lot of the structural and, and, and debt weaknesses that are embedded in different countries in the Eurozone. So my worry is that we do get an L for now, and that L proves to result in, in what you and I know as multiple equilibrium dynamics, which means it makes the likelihood of a recession in Europe higher. That's my concern. You know, you spoke of the divergence between uh, the U.S. and, and Europe. Uh, why? What, what do you think are the fundamental reasons for this divergence and what can Europe do, if anything, to, uh, to erase it? So I think the economic divergence if, is, is related mainly, not entirely, to three factors. One is that the U.S. has had some pro-growth policies. Whether you agree that they were efficient and fair, and we should have a, a good debate on this um, or not, I know almost of no economist that doesn't buy into the argument that the deregulation and the tax cut that were implemented by the U.S. have had a short-term growth boost. Europe has done very little, if anything, to promote economic growth policy-wise, and that relates to politics, and we'll come back to that. The second issue why the U.S. um, is doing better, it is less open than Europe, so it has been less vulnerable to the spillover from the U.S.-China trade war. Europe is very open to trade and has taken the hit hard. And then the third factor is the U.S. is just inherently more dynamic in terms of economic activities. So put these three things together, and the U.S. continues to outperform um, the rest of the world, both for internal reasons and because it's less exposed to external vulnerabilities. Mm, okay. Is uh, and and you don't do you see anything that could spark a turnaround for now? If you know, I mean, we we do want to talk about what your 
projection is for the outcome of these trade negotiations or war, however we want to uh, characterize it with. And certainly that's, I think, very important, very important for the financial markets. And I've been saying the main mover up and down, even U.S. markets. But is, is do you see anything in Europe that could tax cuts, pro-growth um, type of uh, German movement. fiscal, German well, you know that's always like a hope delayed and never found. Uh, or, will Germany ever run enough deficit to to stim? And they're doing well. I mean, well, they're slumping right now, but of course, their long term or, or, or maybe Mohammed also like the negative rate policy. I know um, you know there's a lot of controversial over negative rates, and that's one of the things that the ECB is trying to do. But do you think it would even be stimulative? There's some people say. And I think the Allianz CEO has commented on this. On if they raised rates, they would be stimulated from going out of negative rates. So I think the ECB is in a lose-lose-lose situation. Um, and that has to do with the fact that I think we have crossed the line between negative interest rates having a beneficial impact. And now we talk about collateral damage and unintended consequences. Um, I am actually completely in the camp and have been for a while that these negative rates um, undermine economic activity in several ways. Um, one, we are seeing increased German savings. So rather than stimulate consumption, what's happening is very cautious German savers who are targeting a certain terminal income level are simply saving more because they're not getting paid on their savings. Two is we're seeing, in my view, excessive risk-taking in some sectors of the financial system. Three, we're seeing zombie companies um, continue to operate. And it is yet another factor that is pressuring down productivity growth. And four, I worry, I haven't seen it yet, but I worry that we're going to find that there's been a misallocation of resources. Um, Market-based economies don't function well in a prolonged period of negative rates. And I think that the Eurozone is discovering this. Getting out is not an option, because if they were to raise interest rates right now, it, it would cause financial market disruptions, and that in itself could spill back. Doing more is not going to help either. So is this why I call it the lose, lose, lose. Where they are right now is uncomfortable. Going back to less negative rates would be problematic. Doing more would be problematic. And I think that what we need more than anything else, and as Jeremy knows, that was a topic of my 2016 book called The Only Game in Town. What we need is a policy handoff from excessive reliance on unconventional policies by central banks to a more comprehensive pro-growth policy approach. It is not an engineering problem. Most economists agree as to what's needed. It's a political implementation issue. And the politics in Germany right now suggests that we're just going to continue hoping for a policy response, but it's not going to happen. Mohammed, I'm just moving a little bit back because I think interest rates and your comments are really important in, of course, that area. I've been speaking quite a bit and also on this program and in lectures that the major reason for the big decline in interest rates, and one could even say negative interest rates, um, is really not the central bank policy but fundamental 
demographic factors. Um, I know I know Joachim Fells at PIMCO, you know, one of your uh, you know, former employers, has come out with a paper really strong on that. Um, uh, Richard Clarita, vice chair of the Federal Reserve uh, here in the United States, uh, delivered a paper, I think, in Zurich uh, that the negative beta of Treasury bonds uh, has depressed the, the term premium dramatically. Um, now, these these are not central bank factors. These are fundamental factors. Where do you stand on on that? So I agree that there's been structural factors, um, and you've cited some, that have driven down the so-called neutral interest rate, that the interest rate in equilibrium is lower than it what, used to, what it used to be. That, that mm-hmm. I agree with that proposition. I think that there also, on top of that, has been policy action, not by choice, but by necessity, that has forced policy rates in Europe even lower. You know, I worked at the IMF for 15 years. The IMF is one big central bank. And what, what the very first thing they tell you on the very first day when I joined is that the IMF never walks away from someone needing help. That the IMF is in the business quote of solving crises, not creating them. The IMF is no different from a central bank. Because central banks have political autonomy, they will do whatever they can to help the macroeconomy, even when they know that their policy measures are second or third best. They are hoping that they build a bridge to something better. And that is how we've gotten into the situation. Over and over again, central banks knew that they could not enhance productivity directly. They could not do tax reform. They could not promote infrastructure spending, but they could buy time for the economy until those who could do what's really needed could get the act together. What they didn't bargain for, and very few people did, was that it would be a repeated game, that they would have to do more and more and more. And that's how we've ended up where we are. So I completely agree with you that there are structural factors driving down, but I think we've had above that also central banks' hyperactivism because other policymakers have been absent. Mm-hmm. You, Let me just you introduce know. our guest real yes. quickly. We're talking with Mohammed el the chief, a chief economic advisor to Allianz, now also a senior global fellow and a professor here at Wharton. Professor, go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, as you said, that you know, we, we economists, and I know you've had lots of economic training, always said central banks are not there to solve fundamental economic problems and really spur growth. They're basically there to stabilize financial markets, prevent inflation. Um, uh, you know, we're asking too much of them. We, you know, we've been lecturing these propositions for decades. Uh, all of a sudden, is it because of a frozen fiscal situation that people throw up their hands and say, leave it, try, leave it to the central banks, when they never really could do that? Yeah, I mean, go back. You're absolutely right. Go back to August 2010. Um, ben Bernanke, the then chair of the Federal Reserve, made a speech at Jackson Hole. And that was the moment in which central banks pivoted from normalizing dysfunctional markets, which they had done really well um, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, 
and we should thank them for that because had they not acted with the courage that they did, the global economy would have been in a multi-year depression. I agree 100%. Yeah. At that point, it was time for the handoff, and they looked around, and it was the emergence of the Tea Party in the U.S. It was a polarization of politics. We shut down the government shortly after that. Um, and, and at that point, they pivoted for using unconventional measures from normalizing markets, which it does very well, to pursuing macroeconomic objectives. And Ben Bernanke at the time said it's about, and I quote, benefits, costs, and risks. And he warned that the longer you rely on unconventional policies, the more the risk that the cost and risks in that equation overwhelm the benefits. As I said, I don't think anybody envisaged that we would go from QE2 to QE2.5 to QE3 to arguably QE infinity, um, that we would see Europe go into negative rates. And it's, it's not, again, I say the central banks got themselves in a situation where they simply couldn't step back from the patient. It's no different from a doctor, um, Jeremy and Jeremy. A doctor will not away, walk away hmm. from his or her patient, even if the medication is not perfect. Well, you know, we all, well, one thing I think we, everyone thought after the crisis, oh, interest rates are going to go back up, maybe not certainly the levels before. I mean, they stayed, I mean, the amount, the increase in risk aversion, the, the increase in demand for high quality assets and, you know, the buffers in the banking system and all that. So even, even though U.S. continued to pump out deficit, the demand for those securities rose even more. Uh, I think, which just depressed the rates to zero. I mean, you know, we were having a GDP recovery, not strong, certainly weak, actually, by historical standards, but still there. And yet interest rates at rock bottom. And, you know, as you mentioned, we these, you know, Japan got into it first. Japan is the most aging of the society. And we always used to make excuses. Oh, the Bank of Japan made mistakes and could have done that. And then Europe uh, and, you know, all of us are falling into the low interest rate world. I mean, you know, how do you get out of it? I, 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 you know, unless you really can spur enough economic growth, but with, you know, the, the, the again, the risk aversion, demand for liquidity, uh, you know, life expectancy, meaning more people putting much more money into long-term bonds, hedging against risk, and then the negative beta, which makes these treasuries uh, so good against the short-run risk assets thing. I mean, it seems like the demand is almost infinite for them. What are you going to do? So, so I take you back to um, May 2009. Um, as you know, I was at PIMCO at the time, and we had navigated the financial crisis relatively well, so we had had time to ask the question, what next? And when we looked at it, we came up with exactly the same conclusion you came up, which is left to its own recourse, this economy and the global economy would not bounce back. That this was not a deep cyclical shock, but this was structural vulnerabilities that had come to the Let me just break in because you were really the one who wrote the new normal. Is that right, Mohammed? You you know, it's often, uh, you know, I mean, Bill Gross talked about it, then it became the, uh, you know, popular word, but it was your article way back then. You guys knew 
that the world was going to be different, that we were not going to grow back at 3 and 4% as we had in the past. Am I not right? You're absolutely right. I mean, I came up with the net number. I remember yeah. exactly where I was at the end of January 2009. We discussed it. Um, internally, we agreed on it. In May 2009, we came out, I came out with the first um, public paper on that. And then in September 2009, at, at the IMF World Bank meetings, mm-hmm. I presented a lecture at the Per Jacobson lecture on the new normal. And the concept was very simple, was that there are structural headwinds. That means that the recovery is going to be unusually slow, but that there are policy responses. Um, The mindset in capitals was very different. The mindset was that this was a deep cyclical shock. And that's why the notions of the three T, if you remember, in policies came out. Targeted, that's great. Timely, absolutely. And the third thing was temporary, that you needed a temporary policy response. Whereas we were arguing you need a deeper structural response. Otherwise, you would find that the recovery was much harder. There was a political window, both in the U.S. in 2009 and 2010, and in Europe, after the depth of that crisis in 2012, there was a political window for implementation. It wasn't exploited. By the time we recognized as a community that this was structural in nature and that we had ended up with not just low growth, but insufficiently inclusive growth that that raised a whole host of other problems, um, the political window for deep policy actions had closed. And and that's, that, that is the tragedy of the aftermath of the global financial crisis, is that it took too long to recognize that this was a structural shock and not just a cyclical shock. If you were king for the day, Mohammed, and you could make one change or, or a few changes that would say this is the structural change we need, because you're saying it's a political issue a lot of the times, like what would you be suggesting are the, the few changes that we should be doing? So it depends whether you look at the U.S. or Europe. Europe needs a lot more. Um, Europe needs four things um, that, again, it's not an engineering problem. Most economists agree. They need to deal with some meaningful structure with rigidities in the labor market and competition. Um, and it, they need an infrastructure program. They need to do more on the demand side, especially in the two countries, Germany and the Netherlands, where there is fiscal space. Third, they need to come to grips with very deep debt overhangs and do something that no one likes to do, but the alternative is worse which is debt reduction, and I'm thinking of Greece. And finally, if they're going to stick to the Eurozone, which is supposed to be a stool with four legs, they can't have a Eurozone that has one and a half legs, which is a full monetary union and half a leg of banking union. They've got to complete the architecture of the Eurozone. That is what Europe needs. U.S. is in a better place, as I said earlier. Um, I was hoping very much that we'd get an infrastructure program we, we, we have a deep need for infrastructure modernization and rehabilitation. Um, at such low interest rates, the return on many of these things exceeds the cost. And there's massive scope, in my opinion, for public-private partnership. So what I would like to see in the U.S. Um, is a major infrastructure program. Um, and I think you'd, you'd be, that would crowd in a lot more private investment, which right now is not where it could be. 
about. We sort of gave the economic outlook uh, a lot discussing the global politics and economics, but maybe sort of tie it back to a market view. Maybe sort of give our listeners, how are you thinking about the, the, tr- the, the market for next year? So it's very much related to where, where, what we've been talking about, which is that central banks have not only um, supported the economy, albeit weakly, but they've had a major impact on asset prices. You know, the only way central banks can pursue their economic objectives is by coming through the asset markets. They cannot directly promote infrastructure. They cannot directly reform the tax system or improve the functioning of the labor market. But what they can do is relax financial conditions. And once you get to really low interest rates, the temptation to do more, which is directly target asset prices, becomes very high. And that's what they've been doing. Um, so think of the asset purchase programs or the QE. They buy, they suck, they take up risk-free assets. That pushes investors and traders to take on more risk. It pushes them out in search of returns. That boosts asset prices. The hope is that asset prices go up, um, asset holders feel richer. You, pr- you, pr- you promote the wealth effect that as we feel better off, we spend more. As we spend more, you encourage companies to invest more. And through the asset channel, you promote economic growth. The risk is that you succeed in promoting asset prices and you don't succeed in promoting economic activity to the same extent. That, I think, is the risk that we're having. Um, And the main risk comes that the system has promised more liquidity in illiquid asset classes than is normally available. So when I look forward to 2020, unless fundamentals improve quickly in the rest of the world to validate where asset prices are today, I anticipate we're going to have more liquidity-induced volatility. Um, And that is because central banks are becoming less effective. So when I look forward, I think we're going to be trading in a much larger um, volatility range than we have this year. So are you worried about the level of U.S. stock market selling at around 20 times this year's earnings, maybe 19 on a modest increase next year? As, uh, would do you think that ratio go down, or uh, do you have any sense of where equities could be in the U.S. through the next 12 months? So what I've been struggling with, Jeremy, is short-term constructive with major medium-term uncertainties. Um, and again, it depends where in, in the stock market. Um, I'm a great believer that the last few years has all been about get a general exposure to the stock market. That's the best way um, to be in the stock market. Why? Because liquidity lifts all boats. So you want to, if you are a passive investor, you've done extremely well, and you should have done extremely well. Um, an active management has, has struggled, as you know, mm-hmm. because the, quote, g- common global factor has been so strong. 
Yeah. In fact, let me, you just wrote in Bloomberg two days ago, I'll quote this sentence, with that, portfolios will gradually move away from heavy reliance on index-based investing, which has worked well in a world of quasi-unquestioned market faith and central bank uh, liquidity, uh, and will favor active management. Um, so you think stock pickers are going to start doing better, uh, Mohammed? If you tell me over the next few years, yes, because I think that the common global factor of liquidity will have less of an influence. Um, now, you interestedly cited at the beginning of the interview trade. Um, you know, one of these things about these markets is as complex as they are, and you, Jeremy, are blessed, best placed, uh, you've been following it for years, mm-hmm. and have such a good feel for them. As complex as they are, they become single-issue markets for a long time. And ironically, we have stumbled into being a single-issued market, not not on, on just li- on liquidity. Now it's trade, as you said. You know, trade has, has caused a lot of short-term ups and downs. Even though you certainly, I would argue that the U.S. is, is more insulated to this issue um, than others. Mm-hmm. So I worry a little bit that we are going to to find that what has worked really, really well. Is less so. Imagine, Jeremy, that I told you a few years ago that the following three things are going to happen. One, we're going to have a dramatic increase in the S&P that will far outpace the rest of the world. Two, that this will happen with almost no volatility in markets. That the VIX would spend most of its time not just below 15, but some of it below 10. And thirdly, that correlations would break down so that you will make money not only on your risky asset, but on your risk-free asset. That this is living the dream for investors. High returns, no volatility, and correlations that favors you, um, even though it it doesn't make sense that both risk-free and and risky assets go up. That is the period we've come from, and it has been very good period for passive index investing. Um, I'm not sure we can extrapolate that for the next five years. And, and when you think about active, like in general, uh, do you describe to the few that all active basically sums up to the market and so this rise towards indexing is basically taking fees out of the market? And so in general, active has to match the market. So is there a type of active that you're talking about? Is it asset allocation versions of active? Is it, you know, because active as a whole can't theoretically outperform. Or, or value growth. And I'm, I'm very interested yeah. in your opinion on, on that split. So if you tell me active in, 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 the, in the S&P will, will, will do a lot better than um, just index in the S&P, I'll tell you, you better have a really, really good manager that has an identifiable edge. Yeah. Um, because if you come and tell me emerging market corporates or or um, high yield bonds, um, active will consistently um, passive will consistently outperform active. So we'll hold on a bit. Look at the index construction. Give you an example. I, I, I was in the public sector and I joined the private sector late, relatively late in my. I was 40 years old, and I was looking at what I inherited, which is a situation in. 2000, where Argentina was 22% of the emerging market index. And Argentina was 22% of the emerging market index because it had issued a ton of debt. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the 
2001 default was one of the best telegraphed software defaults in history. And I would sit on panels um, where the first question that we would be asked is, how do you feel about Argentina? And everybody would be very negative. The second question would be asked is, how are you positioned in Argentina? And then everybody would say, underweight. And then the third question would be, how underweight are you? And you'd hear very underweight on five percentage points, which meant that people had 17% of their portfolio in a country that they feared or expected actually to default. Our view was zero. Why have any in Argentina, if that's your view? So there are certain indices. Um, debt especially. In, <laughs> debt, debt especially, and debt especially in the lower part of the quality spectrum, okay, mm. whose construction can be counterproductive for good investment. So the problem with, with the passive revolution, which makes total sense, you might as well save on fees, um, it's not easy to outperform uh, markets, is that it, it, it extended to very illiquid asset classes and extended to asset classes where the index construction is an issue. Mm. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Mohammed El Aaron, Chief Economic Advisor for Allianz. Uh, I got Professor Siegel in the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Mohammed, it's what fascinating. I was on a panel at an indexing conference this week, actually, in the New York City. I'm not sure if it was a CIO or somebody, but somebody senior at the New York City office, $250 billion of assets under management, said all this stuff that's not beta is a marketing gimmick. You got to be, we got to own the market. We hadn't done this in high yield bonds, to your point on these sort of in places where it doesn't make sense at all. He's like, well, we did a two-year study in all of our high yield managers, and we've decided it's not worth it. We got to buy beta. Um, and do you, do you think that, in, that, again, sort of this shift towards just, A, lowering fees for New York City, but... Is high yield bonds the symbolic of what you're talking about? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and the trouble is that if you do it looking back, okay, then you, you get that conclusion. Um, and you get that conclusion because the liquidity factor has been so strong in driving people to take on more risk. And, and a lot of people have taken on more risk in less liquid asset classes using um, index-based products. So it's a self-reinforcing argument. So I understand why looking back, the argument is let's save on fees because we would have done just as well on the, on the passive side in high yield than had we chosen an active manager. Um, in fact, when you have a very strong common global factor, um, active management becomes very difficult. And that's why you've seen some very big hedge fund managers simply give up on, on macro investing. Um, however, going forward, for that to repeat itself from these level of spreads, these level of overall yields, you've got to assume that the liquidity factor is going to be even stronger. Um, and that's what I don't buy. So I say, look, it, it has made total sense, but be careful what you're assuming if you simply replicate for these sorts of asset classes going forward. Going, re reflecting on that, um, I mentioned value growth and, you know, value being, by some measures, the worst 10-year performance in, in history since 1926. Um, has it reached value stocks for, uh, you know, many of our listeners who have been interested in those? Do you think that in two, 2020, given what you've said, 
that it might be their time to outperform? Um, my my inclination is, is to be more more micro than that. Mm-hmm. I think that that you want to solve um, for a few characteristics, and 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 the good thing for investors is there's lots of companies that offer that, and it comes from this notion that there are major uncertainties over the horizon. Um, look, I don't know, for example, let's start with trade because you mentioned that. I don't know whether we have just pressed the pause button on globalization and that we're simply going to press play again and the world will continue to globalize economically and financially on better footing. And by better footing, I mean not just a fair trade, but a fairer um, trade that remains free. That's one view. But, but there's also the other view that we are going to press de- the, the, the rewind button on globalization. We're going to deglobalize because it's, simply, it's not just about economics anymore. It's also about national security. I don't know what the answer is. Um, mm-hmm. So that is a major uncertainty. Yeah. I don't know how much collateral damage we've created to the system from over-reliance on central banks. I don't know to what extent the technological climate change and demographic shocks are going to be fast forwarded, front loaded um, into the system. So when I, when I step back, some of the major tenets, some of the parameters that have underpinned the wiring of the financial system have become more uncertain. So you need three types of attributes um, whether you are a country, a company, or even a household to navigate, navigate that. You need resilience um, to deal with a fatter left tail. You need optionality to be able to update your information set and your probabilities of potential outcomes um, using scenario analyses. And then you need agility, the ability to move quickly. For a company, that translates into very solid balance sheet position cash generation, a solid business model, and good management. And I think that those types of companies um, are going to be the ones that are going to reward investors. We will have a chance to pick them up cheaply, because I do think we're going to have more volatility. And slowly, that investors so slowly, and I stress slowly, because I am short-term constructive, should slowly start moving to that sort of portfolio. And you say, and you say that sort of portfolio. Exactly, what do you mean, Mohammed? So there's a set of companies. You know, I, I solve for these companies. So, so I asked, I asked the question, what companies meet these criteria? Um, and then you look at valuation and ask the question, um, when is a good time to buy them? So I have a set of companies that I keep there. And when we go through our periodic pullback, like the fourth quarter of, la- of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the typical market for lemon phenomenon. You get typical contamination um, because the, the, the correlation among, among single stock moves goes up significantly. Um, and that's the time um, to, buy, to buy these companies. And then you wait. So, so what you do as an investor is you maintain your structural and secular 
inclinations and positioning for portfolio, but you, but you have a somewhat more of a tactical or opportunistic side to it. And you slowly evolve your portfolio from what has worked very well, which is general market exposure, to making it somewhere more focused and more targeted as the opportunities arise. Yeah, well, most certainly. I remember Christmas Eve last year when the market was down virtually 20% from its high the previous October. Uh, that was an opportunity. But, you know, what is interesting... And, and why, Jeremy. You know, yeah. ask, I, I remember I, I was looking at, at this, and, and the reason why, in my view, was Fed miscommunication. Yeah, and oh, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, we, we had Loretta that. Messer on the show, and he was sitting here just like he is right now, pounding the table. Are you guys made a mistake? Yeah. yeah, I mean that communication, that especially the verbal communication from that December meeting, and the Dow was down seven hundred points when Powell was talking, showed. And, and I, was, I was, I was watching it tick by tick, and, and the irony was that the market absorbed the, the the interest rate increase, which I had argued at the time was excessive. Okay, and, and then it is when. Chair Powell repeated over and over again that yeah. QE was an autopilot, autopilot, autopilot. Yeah, yeah. That is when the market started moving. Yeah, three increases in 2019, <laughs> which in fact turned into three decreases. But <laughs> instead, <laughs> as the market said, hey, that's wrong. Um, so, uh, but so you're you're not you, you don't particularly think what we would call value stocks are good. It's tactical and the type of companies that you'd. You said that you thought had the good management of the defensive portfolios, et cetera, and so on, that rather than just picking it blindly uh, or, or generically as a certain classification. Yeah, I mean, you'll find some of these names in, on the value side, and I know I'm hesitating to mention it because I, I don't do that. I don't, I don't mention specific companies. Um, so you find them in the value space, but you'll also find them elsewhere. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked emerging markets yet, Mohammed, and yeah. uh, like so much of the story this year is China trade. Um, yet some of the China tech, like sort of, we have U.S. tech being the leader. China tech's actually up more than the U.S. this year. It's just defying the trade this issue. Is that part of your long-term view of you have slow growth uh, but better growth overseas in some of these emerging markets? Um, so, so I have been very pro-emerging markets, but I have cautioned over the last few years um, people from reallocating away from the U.S. towards emerging markets generally. Um, Picking certain spots in emerging markets, that I'm okay with. But general exposure to emerging markets um, vis-a-vis the U.S., I say not, not yet. Even though, if you go back five years, the extent to which U.S. stocks have outperformed emerging markets is eye popping. In fact, a lot of people would tell you, would have told you at the time, you cannot get that amount of um, outperformance from the U.S. But it has continued, and it has continued for good reason, which is that if we press pause on globalization, emerging markets are the most vulnerable segment of the marketplace. Um, they, they, globalization for them is a way to, A, add to their domestic savings that's insufficient for, for what they do, and two, to leapfrog in terms of the economic development. So if you press pause on deglobalization, on globalization, and if, you, if, you, if there's a risk of deglobalization, that is a major headwind um, for emerging markets, and it can actually derail the, most, the more vulnerable of them. So the general argument for emerging markets right now is still weak. Uh, the time will come 
But that time requires clarity on what's happening to the overall economic context. When you change your mind, we want you back in the show giving us uh, all, all the rationale. <laughs> but uh, when, what, what do you look for as a cow? Is it just this sort of, this, the, you know, you're gonna, because it's all so politically motivated at the moment? Is it a polit- political all-clear sign? So trade is interesting. Um, let's focus on trade for a sec. It used to be about economics, and it used to be about how do you iterate to a fairer trade system. The grievances we have vis-a-vis China are shared by many countries. Intellectual property theft, forced transfers of technology, joint venture requirements. Those are things that should have disappeared over time as China became a full member of the WTO and the global system, and they haven't. And I think that the judgment that the administration made was that in game theory terms, that it doesn't solve it as a collaborative game, that you had to be, make it a non-collaborative and non-cooperative game in order to get China's attention. And that's why we, the United States, have weaponized tariffs as a means of getting to a fairer trade system. That is how it started. And countries like Mexico and Canada, who were at the forefront of the tariff war, realized pretty quickly that the right answer is to make concessions, de-escalate, and move on. China held on. And in holding on, the economic argument for tariffs was supplemented by national security arguments, and now, most recently, by human rights issues. So it makes a durable solution much harder. We can and probably will get short-term ceasefires, truces, But I think that the underlying problems are not just economic now, but they also relate to to other issues that are harder to solve. So so I don't see that going away anytime soon. Um, We're going to have question marks about the rules governing the trading system. Is it still a rule-based system, or are more countries going to weaponize economic tools? That issue is not going away. Professor, last two minutes. Any closing thoughts or final questions? Well, uh, certainly a lot to think of uh, that orientation. I'm more positive than you are on the emerging markets. I I think uh, on valuation. Uh, You know, low valuation allows for a lot of problems. I mean, you you almost their dividend yield is good enough that you don't need capital appreciation. (laughs) Uh, You know, we had Russia selling at three times earnings, four times earnings, other Merging markets, 9, 10, 11, 12, um, still as a group growing faster than the developed markets. Um, I'm also more optimistic on the trade front. I I believe that if Trump has any hope for re-election next year, he's got to make a deal. It, may be, it won't be his best deal. I don't think he made his best deal with the Canada and Mexico either. Um, but I think he's got to get some deal on it, and I think the market does want that deal. Um, uh, and so I believe it's posturing at this point. Uh, so I'm a little bit 
more optimistic on those standpoints, I think, than Mohammed is. But you, you know, listen, got to listen to all points of view. I'm, I'm going to have to give Professor the last <laughs> word, Mohammed. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. Hopefully, we'll get you on campus at studio in person at some point. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks to producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.